This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I am absolutely thrilled to be here, but more so I'm thrilled as a skin researcher for the last 20 years and as chair of the Department of Dermatology that this uh, group has decided to focus on skin and and recognize the benefits of this organ to uh, understand more about who we are and what our cells um, really are made of. And, of course, the first picture I'd like to do is to show a couple different hands than we have in our cover. Um, And these are the types of hands we like to look at, the type of skin we like to look at. We have impressions about ourselves and our health that's really dictated by the skin. Now, of course, we recognize ourselves by our skin, and that's the most obvious function of all of what the skin is. There's no doubt that this is a different species, perhaps a chimp. And years ago, in the field of dermatology, there was a very well-known dermatologist named William Montagna did quite a bit of uh, comparative anatomy, looking at the histology of different species, and uh, published a series of fascinating papers which described many similarities and many differences between uh, different species in terms of elements of the skin. And perhaps what was most interesting about this work is that this focus of those papers were really specifically to try to understand more about ourselves by studying skin because of, of primates, because at the time it was easier for him to get primate skin than it was for him to get human skin. We also have more rare disorders that and somehow perhaps uh, emphasizes our common origin evolutionarily. On the left is an unfortunate gentleman in China with a, something called a large uh, hairy congenital nevus. And on the right is a primate that has alopecia. And you wonder if there's some uh, convergence here when you look at these types of photos. And then our government and in the technology-rich world around us, exploits the skin for many things that you may or may not be aware of. And this is an image that shows uh, uh, assessing blood flow and temperature in skin of individuals in an airport. And it's used actually as a covert lie detection system to look for people who might be flushing nervous. And it's also used during disease outbreaks for disease surveillance. This was particularly prevalent during the SARS uh, epidemic, trying to pick people who might have a fever out of a crowd. So the skin has been exploited by many, many different ways um, just from the outside. Sometimes looks can be deceiving and the skin can fool you. And we take it for granted in terms of what's going on underneath there. So I'd like to show you, as uh, as skin biologists, some of the techniques and the approaches that we use to understand more about the skin. And to do that, we need to look more closely what's down deep within the skin. This is an illustration of what would happen if you cut a little cube out of the skin, captured four hair follicles. The top here is the surface of the skin. And as we look below the surface, we see many, many different cell types. In fact, this is probably the most complex organ that we have in our body with blood vessels, nerves, uh, endocrine functions. It can sweat. It can produce oils. It does all of this, and it must do it in a way that protects itself from the outside environment. 
And as we look more closely, we see wonderful things going on in these different cell types within the skin. On the right here is a time-lapse photography of a live hair follicle showing how the cells are constantly in motion, constantly differentiating, actually regenerating the organ over and over again. And much of what we've learned about basic developmental biology, about stem cells, comes from studying some of the phenomenal interactions that cells undergo in this simple little thing of a hair. Another way to look at the skin instead of cutting through the skin vertically is to cut across the top of the surface of the skin horizontally. And if you did that and shave just the top of the skin and stain what's in there, uh, you see this network of immune cells. These are called dendritic cells. And our entire surface of our skin is covered by this net of cells that's interacting with the outside environment. And the classic uh, uh, thoughts about how those cells interact with the environment can, is illustrated in this little movie. Maybe some of you have seen this. This actually was a film uh, made in the 1950s. And it was really the dawn of our understanding of host immune defense and how immune cells work. And it shows a macrophage-like cell. And this little dot over here is a bacterium. And it's the basic concept of the time is that we devised specific cells that went out and could recognize bacteria as bad, as an external part that we don't want, could chase it down. As you could see in this movie, the, the macrophage is actually changing direction while it's swimming amongst all these blood cells and chasing down the bacteria until it finally can engulf it and kill it. Well, what we learned about 20 years ago now is that our system of, that our skin uses to defend against the outside environment is more than just specific cells that are tracking down bacteria, but that our skin surface also produces natural antibiotics. We've named these AMPs, or antimicrobial peptides. And this is a slide from some work I did when I was, I guess, about five years old, since 20 years ago, that, that shows the brown staining of the first known uh, mammalian skin antibiotic. And this isn't produced by these specific immune cells, but it's actually produced by the cells that form the surface of the skin, suggesting that there's more to the way the skin interacts with the outside environment than we may otherwise think. In fact, I want to show you an example of a wonderful experiment that demonstrates just how important those surface uh, antibiotics are to us. And on one side here, uh, you see a, a picture of, a, of an agar plate. And the way this experiment is done is the investigator very carefully washed the surface of her hands, touched a bacteria, and in one case, the bacteria is Staph aureus. That's a bacteria that normally can make infections on the skin. We know it's dangerous to our skin. And if you touch those bacteria, wait a few minutes, and then go back later and touch a plate, you see that the bacteria were able to live on the surface of the skin. That's why the fingerprints show up. All those little dots are the bacteria that lived on the, on the surface of the skin and that got transferred to the plate. But if you do the exact same experiment, but now when you wash your hands, instead of touching a skin bacteria, you touch a intestinal bacteria like E. coli. This is a pathogen too, but it doesn't cause disease in the skin. You see that when you go back later and touch your fingers to a plate, all the E. coli are dead. So this is a great example and somewhat explains certain diseases. It explains why Staph aureus can be 
uh, a disease-causing organism on skin because it survives, and why E. coli is never found as a disease-causing organism uh, uh, in the skin situation, because the skin makes specific antimicrobials. What's particularly interesting about this experiment, though, is the all-important control. And as scientists, we love controls. And that is to do the same experiment but have sterile surgical gloves on. So you see what happens. When you have sterile gloves on, you touch Staph aureus and wait a while and touch your glove-covered bacteria on the plate. Some of the Staph aureus survived, but they're not, as, they're not doing so well. They actually missed the fact that they were on the surface of our skin. But look at what happened with the E. coli. These gloves touched the same number of E. coli as the bare fingertips did. And you can see the E. coli survive very, very well when the gloves are on your hand. So what does that mean practically for our everyday life, thinking about the skin? Well, it means that gloves protect bacteria from us. particularly bacteria that cause intestinal diseases. And you should think about that when you go through the cafeteria line. So that's my segue into some of our research that I like to talk about that I I hope you'll agree with me or at least think about the fact that perhaps how we think about ourselves as humans shouldn't just be this antagonistic relationship between us defending against them. But as you'll hear later in in the afternoon, there's quite a bit of information that's coming from the field of microbiome research that says that, you know, these bacteria that are on us, perhaps they're not all so bad. And is it possible that a lot of the skin bacteria that normally survive on us are not just bystanders? And, And what I want to lead to is to ask you to think about the question, should we really completely rethink established approaches to the study of human origin? based on these observations made in the skin. Classically, we think about this type of tree of life and evolution where the single-cell organisms evolved into complex organisms like humans. But I propose to you that perhaps we should flip this on its head and think about it, really, that we have, de- we have evolved to serve the master microbes <laughs> And we're all these little different types of organisms. Some dropped off the evolutionary tree and some survive. But we're here in part to serve the microbe and perpetuate its survival. And I think you would agree that with the expansion of humans, the expansion of the microbes that we carry is going to be just as successful. So it's good for them too. So what's the evidence to support this kind of crazy thinking? Well, has human skin and microbe really co-evolved to serve each other? Are the microbes one of our own cells, not just something foreign, but is this part of us? And there's lots of evidence now to to really, I think, very clearly uh, show us that specific types of bacteria, specific microbes on the skin, are absolutely essential to human health. How could this be? Well, One way we understood this is when we realized that the microbes aren't just living outside on the surface. They're not outside the door, but they're really integral in that little piece of skin that I illustrated to you earlier. This is some work done by a couple of scientists in my lab over the last few years showing how microbes are not just at the surface, and there's these little tiny purple dots, and the epidermis is the top layer of the skin. And if you look down on the hair follicle, you see lots of microbes. That wasn't such a surprise. 
But what was a surprise to us and many others is that if you look in areas that we thought were sterile, even in healthy skin that hasn't been injured, that's normally working, there's collections of microbes that live down amongst our, in our fat, in, in the tissues between our blood vessels. And they're there in a place where they could be interacting with the rest of our body. One of the ways that microbes benefit us on our skin can be illustrated by an experiment just like the one I showed you before, but with a little bit of a twist. So this is an experiment. Again, those three lines are fingertips. And now the investigator was a graduate student in my lab, Anna Kogan, washed her hands very carefully of the normal bacteria and touched a a type of bacteria known as group A streptococcus. This is also known as the flesh-eating bacteria. So normal ones would be very dangerous. This was a type of bacteria that we attenuated, so it was relatively safe. But why we use these bacteria is that they are a pathogen, so they are foreign bacteria. We don't want them. And secondly, that they have a unique capacity to lyse red blood cells. So you can see them really obviously when you touch a plate that has blood in it. It lyses it. That's why it's all clear. So what happens if she has on her fingertips, not the bad guys, the flesh-eating bacteria, but these are normal fingertips, colonized with the type of bacteria that you all have on your skin right now at a concentration of somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000 per square centimeter. You have a lot of these bacteria known as staph epidermidis, epidermis for the skin. So these are not diseased. This isn't dirty. This is normal. And if you touch the skin, uh, these, this plate with skin that's populated with those, you can see those bacteria because they make these little tiny dots here, shadows. So now here's the question. What happens if Anna, instead of washing her hands really carefully before touching the flesh-eating bacteria, just had let the normal bacteria survive on her skin, the healthy type of bacteria? Well, this is what happens. This, she touched the same amount of bacteria as on the far right here. But now, in this case, with your healthy bacteria there, it's fighting, it's helping you resist the flesh-eating bacteria. And she's gone on to actually identify new antibiotics from these types of bacteria. And there are many hundreds of new antibiotics that can be discovered just within our own ecosystem on our surface of the skin. Another way the bacteria control us is they influence how much of a rash, how much inflammation you can have. And this is a very dramatic experiment, again, using this model of the, of the skin cartoon that shows if you cut your skin or scratch your skin and it's absolutely sterile and you have no bacteria on it, the amount of swelling and redness and scaliness is much, much greater than if the skin has a normal microbiome. And you can see that here in this microscopic image, how thick a sterile wound is as, composed, as opposed to not infected but a normal skin wound with a normal microbial community. So the microbes are defending us against flesh-eating bacteria. Some microbes are controlling our immune system. And this is some very recent work that we've done to look at a very common type of disease known as atopic dermatitis. There's a picture of a child in the corner here on the bottom with a complication of this disease. It's a type of eczema. And these patients, unfortunately, very often get staph infections. That was that bacteria that we showed you in the glove experiment. And when you look at normal population, this is several thousand samples, uh, most of the normal bacteria on healthy individuals produce these antibiotics that kill staphylococcal, staphylococcal disease-causing bacteria. 
But in patients with eczema, there's very few, actually, of the normal type of bacteria. They're displaced by another bacteria. It's neither disease-causing nor normal. It's kind of inert. It doesn't do us any good. And when that happens, these individuals then start to get staph infections. They saw a very, very strict correlation between the capacity to get a staph infection and whether or not you had these bacteria. So what can you do with this type of realization? Well, you can try to help people, which is ultimately why we do our research. And this is showing an experiment. This is the beginning of a large clinical trial we're doing in a number of cities. This is now eight patients, but kind of show you what happens. Um, this is the average result. And on the, bl the blue side is before treatment and the amount of staph aureus. And the red side is after you put a treatment on. So first is a control. You just put a moisturizing cream on, and you see the amount of the infected bacteria, if anything, goes up a little bit. It doesn't really change. And what if you put one of these inert bacteria, like are found in uh, patients with the disease? Well, nothing happens. If you put a cream that has those bacteria on it, the patients stay the same. They still have less, a lot of Staph aureus. But now here's strain two. This is a bacterial strain from a normal person that's transplanted onto the diseased skin. And you can see this, this, this bacterial strain, just in a single application, causes over a hundredfold decrease in the amount of infectious bacteria. This has worked at actually every single patient we've tried so far, so we better stop the study now, right, before we find out it doesn't work. But um, we're very excited about it, and I think it's further showing how some microbes, not all microbes, are our friends, and some microbes are clearly our enemies. So how should we think about this in this conference? Well, I'd like to propose to you the concept of the superorganism. We probably only inherit of our total genetic makeup on our bodies, probably only about 10% of it really comes from our parents, because 90% of the organisms that we carry around from us are microbes. So that means, when you think about it, most of the genetic material we're carrying around, we can exchange. We're not stuck with the things our parents gave us. We can exchange bacteria just by shaking hands. And if anybody's really healthy here, I'd like to shake hands with you. <laughs> and what it really also means, of course, we, we realize this already, but our environment can directly influence who we are. And this now starts to get us to a molecular and genetic explanation for something we've observed for a very long time. Certain environmental situations affect health, and that might be because those environmental situations are affecting the health of the cells on us that are microbes. So with that, I'd like to suggest that understanding the pro and antimicrobial systems of primates and humans can better define who we are. And I thank you very much for your time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.